to the great work radio program. The great work radio and blog are features of Jesse Ward's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. That's J E S S E W A U G H.com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoy today's program. Hello and welcome to our first interview here on the Great Work Radio. We are pleased to have as our guest Liliana Leopardi of Hobart and William Smith Colleges, New York. Liliana is currently working on the first complete translation of Camillo Leonardi's Speculum Lapidum, or The Mirror of Stones, as it is known in English. In this episode, she expands on her publication entitled Renaissance Magic and Semi-Precious Stones, The Fetish as a Path to Psychological Integrity. How did you get interested in the topic of uh, magic jewels? Because it's a really unique and fascinating subject. Um, I think I became first interested um, after I visited the Museo degli Argenti in uh, Florence at the uh, Palazzo Pitti. Um, they have a large collection of gems and jewels that were owned by the um, uh, Medici. And I remember reading at a certain point that some of these gems were believed to have magical powers. And subsequently, I also visited the, the uh, Camerino, the little study room of, of Francesco I de Medici, who was the son of Cosimo I. And his whole study room, which is in Uffizi, is decorated with images of um, uh, mining and uh, fishing of corals. So there is this theme of jewels and gems being discovered that is illustrated in the Camerino. So that the, the sort of like a conflation between these two ideas is what started me uh, thinking about what was really the role of the uh, magic and gems and jewels since, uh, you know, uh, an elite class space like the Camerino had been decorated with these uh, large-scale paintings of mining of jewels and fishing of pearls. Were the Medici specifically interested in jewels or was that just one of their interests? No, I think that's one of their interests. It's a very good question. I think that they were collectors of gems and jewels probably since the time of Lorenzo de' Medici. You know, it, it was common in the 15th century for elite class individuals to have collections of precious cameos, in particularly cameos of antiquity. And I think from there you sort of see this, um, this interest in uh, uh, the uh, precious stones. But um, they are not the only ones who were interested in uh, precious gems uh, at this time. I think like you can probably find collections, uh, princely collections that go back probably to the Middle Ages. In Italy, I think the Medici collection was one of the most important and one of the first for the Renaissance period. Was the, uh, you know, the natural history collection in La Specola? Yes. Is, was that begun by the Medicis or no? 
I believe so. And um, I think it's a little, you know, it wasn't started in the 15th century. It might even be, it go back to the 17th century. I'd have to check to the time that it was started, but it was certainly sponsored by the Medici. Okay. You know, like as I mentioned before, it's not just the Medici. And it's sort of something that you see develop, you know, in the 15th and 16th century, uh, this sort of interest in uh, um, gems and magic is certainly connected to alchemy. Once you get to the 17th century, which is really probably the time when the speckle is coming around, then it becomes part of this sort of uh, effort to collect uh, the encyclopedia of the world, if you yeah, will. Yeah. You have the, the Kunstkammer idea. Well, there's an exhibition on right now at the Uffizi about the Medici sponsorship of al- alchemic experimentation. Oh. Yeah. oh, I know that. Oh, fantastic. Thank yeah. you for letting me know. It's called, it's called, uh, it's called um, what is it? In, in Italian, it's called RN Alchemy. Ah, yeah. Okay, I will have to look. Is there a catalog for it? Did you know? There is a catalog only in Italian, and um, it's twenty euros. <laughs> and ah, but you know fantastic. what I did? I did. I did a little. Um, I did a little article or on a blog post on my uh, blog on jessiewall.com, and it shows some of the pictures, the main pictures that are in look. the exhibition. So that that should be of some service. And but there's there's a bit more that's there that I didn't get to uh, take pictures of. Absolutely. I will definitely look. Thanks for letting me know, Jesse. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So, okay. So, um, one of the main themes of your research, um, Mm -hmm. and we'll get into what you're doing because you're translating a very important book. Uh, Mm -hmm. but what, one of the main themes of your research is lithotherapy. That's right. And what exactly does that mean? That's right. Yeah. Basically it is like therapy through stones, right? Um, and it's uh, uh, um, the belief that stones, whether precious or semi-precious or just clay, literally just a rock, that they had uh, pressure, that they had, sorry, occult powers, that is hidden. So occult in the sense of hidden. It's an idea that goes back to the Greeks. And probably it's an idea actually that you know the Middle Ages inherited not only from the Greeks because you can find it uh, uh, even in Pliny, but they probably inherited as well through Islamic tradition, where the tradition of lithotherapy was actually very well developed. Uh, but originally, sorry, when scholars uh, cite Islamic influence on, uh, particularly yes. on middle, medieval Christian and Renaissance yes. uh, Europe, are they actually referring to? Egypt um, before Islam, do you think? I think that's a very good question. I think they're referring not only to Egypt, so they're referring to the whole tradition of Hermes Trismegistus. And here, please forgive me if I mispronounce it. I tend to go with an Italian pronunciation. No, no, and I'm going to ask you about that later. Yeah. yeah, Um, So you're absolutely right that they're sort of uh, referencing the Corpus Hermeticum that was uh, basically the knowledge of ancient Egypt that was then translated in the uh, uh, 15th century and which had been re-elaborated and filtered through during the Alexandrine period. But they're also referencing actually Islamic tradition that had um, inherited as well this Corpus Hermeticum and developed it further. I'm trying to see if I can look very quickly in my list 
of um, uh, let me see in my list of the various um, um, volumes of lithotherapy uh, if I can fish out very clearly a reference to uh, Islamic. When you say volumes on lithotherapy what are you particularly referring to renaissance volumes? Yeah, medieval and renaissance. Uh, you know, it's something that it's, uh, like I said, it's something that you find referenced in Pliny, you find it referenced in Albertus Magnum, you find it a reference in Marbeau. What is interesting is that in the Middle Ages is mostly actually men of the cloth, so priests who are interested in these ideas. So you have Isidore of Seville, um, as I mentioned before, Marbeau, who was the Bishop of Rennes, uh, um, and all of these men, even include Thomas Aquinas, discuss this idea of the uh, uh, power of gems. Was that potentially heretical? And also, in terms of Islam, it would have been also potentially blasphemous to Islam too as well, no? no because it has to do with magic and, and, and geomancy and stuff? I think it's interesting because what happens is you have a man like Thomas Aquinas who um, gives a, a clear distinction between what is considered to be natural magic and what is considered to be black magic. And natural magic is perfectly admissible, you know, so the church does not have uh, uh, problems with natural magic. Natural magic basically being understood as something that uh, is given as, if you will, by God. You know, you're not calling in upon forces, you're not calling in upon de demons or right. anything like that. Demons, yeah. On the other hand, you also have a long tradition found in the Bible of the importance of gems in the spiritual tradition. So if you look uh, uh, in a various passages of the Bible, including in Exodus and Apocalypse, you have references to precious gems. I mean, the, the, the heavenly Jerusalem is conceived as being built on precious gems. The gates of paradise are the pearly gates, right? Yeah. Is there any specific reference to the um, Temple of Solomon having anything to do with jewels or being constructed of jewels? Uh, decorated absolutely with precious materials and gems and jewels. Yeah, and precious materials in in particular. You know, like even in the what about in the holy of holies? Do you have you ever read anything about that? Uh, no, I've not. I've not come across any kind of references like that. You know, you have to consider that marbles. You know, at this time they are being classified among the precious and semi-precious stones. Okay, right. Okay, and then um, what about occlusion versus mirroring? Ah, okay. Um, now, what you're asking me is instead um, something that uh, um, regards the way in which we might interpret uh, the gems and jewels and how they are, uh, how they appear in portraits, right? Okay. One of the qualities of a gem is, of course, that of refracting light and of uh, reflecting light, if you will, right? Uh -huh. On the other hand, one could argue, though, that by reflecting light, by refracting light, they also blind you, they also actually occlude you so that you cannot actually see them uh, uh, well, right? You mm -hmm. cannot 
we see their true essence, if that makes sense. Um, and so in, in, on the one hand, the, the gem both attracts you and repels you in the sense that it does not allow you to see its true essence. Um, and I, in here, what I'm trying to argue is that if we consider that the uh, they are um, classifying these gems or considering these gems are having occult powers, the powers are hidden. They're never be they're never truly visible. The beauty of the gem might sometime um, give a hint as to what their occult power is, but not necessarily. Um, for example, one of the most precious materials uh, during the Renaissance in the realm of magic stones was the bezoar. Uh-huh. Now, bezoar stones are nothing other than uh, basically um, uh, sort of more like a, like a kidney stone or gallbladder stone. Oh, really? used to buy uh, the Bezoar goats. <laughs> and these stones were believed to have the power to repel all sorts of poisons. And oh, it, there are very, they could be very small and they could be very large. And they're rather ugly looking things. <laughs> I bet, yeah. Basically, but, but it actually sounds like it would almost make sense, doesn't it? <laughs> because goats can eat anything. Basically defecated by the goats, right? Oh, is it? I thought I was picturing them um, dissecting the goat just for that. <laughs> These things were rather considered rather precious, and you find them in collection nowadays. I think the museum in Munich has a large collection of bezoar stones, and they would be completely recovered in gold filigree. So oh, you know, really? it's, wow necessarily the external beauty of the stone that alerts you to its occult properties. Now, that was never confused with the philosopher's stone at all, I hope. No, no, not at all. <laughs> all right, good. All right, and then what about, does the um, occlusion versus mirroring have anything to do with... I'm sorry, Jesse, I... Oh, sorry, does, does the occlusion versus mirroring have anything to do with ma- macrocosm and microcosm? Of the occlusion versus mirroring, it's more... Of a modern interpretation based on Lacanian approaches, whereas instead the division of macrocosm and microcosm is proper to the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, and sort of you know you know men sort of seen at the center of this relationship between macrocosm and microcosm, right? Uh, what is above is reflected below. And so what is in the star is also reflected in man. Man is influenced by these um, energies uh, that are emitted by the planets because after all, these are considered to be you know, uh, 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 divine energies. The energies of the planets is nothing other than divine energy. So to a certain extent, they're trying to bring together what we're probably astrological beliefs of ancient Egypt with Christian uh, belief. Did they have any kind of hierarchy of jewels? Ah, very good question. I think that some jewels tend to be more popular than others. You know, uh, I think rarity uh, of the stone is what made it, you know, important. Uh, some stones, for example, like, of course, diamonds, because of their hardness, were considered to be uh, more important than others. But what's interesting is that, uh, you know, today we would think, of course, yes, diamond is very obvious, but we would not be aware of a bezoar stone, which at that right. time 
they're the more precious than the diamond. If you was want. it really? <laughs> was it really? From a magical point of view, yeah. you know, like we are considering the, the magical and occult property of the stone, then the bezoar is more important. Okay, what about uh, thaum thaumaturgic powers? Uh, the same thing as, you know, like a, the, the ability basically to heal, you know, because many of these stones are believed to, you know, protect you either from poison or actually heal you once you've ingested poison. Or the same thing, heal you from fevers, from malaria, from all sorts of uh, uh, diseases of the eyes. It seems like in particular, you know, in reading manuals of lithotherapy, one comes across very and the uh, concern with uh, healing of the eye, fevers, and uh, possibly also uh, uh, sexual potency. And you mentioned in your talk that the two of the popes had uh, ingested uh, diamond dust or ground jewels in order to heal themselves and that it had the opposite effect. Well, you know, I just didn't heal them. <laughs> <laughs> I guess not, right? Uh, them, but it was it was not really beneficial in the end. But both Clement the Seventh and Leo the Tenth um, are known to have uh, been uh, cured or treated, I should say, not cured but treated with uh, potions of ground gems, which included uh, rubies, diamonds, uh, emeralds, etc. You know, I have a question specifically about emeralds. What what have you found out about emeralds? Because that's actually one of my favorite uh, semi or precious stones, rather. Pull it out from you, uh, for you uh, from. Um, uh, uh, let me see. I'm looking at the. Uh, here we go. I'm looking at the entry on emerald that was written by the 16th century physician Camillo Leonardi. So I'm just going to read it to you. It's very brief, so it might be interesting just to have the source, right? Mm -hmm. He says that there are many types of emerald, that the, the Scythians are superior to all. The green is so intense that placed under light, not only does their color not dim, but rather its green intensified in strength. It colors the surrounding air with its hue. Um, and it takes the, the, the name emerald, which in Latin was maragdus, take its name from the deep green that the stones uh, had. Uh, uh, Leonardi says that he has found in the sources, in medieval sources, at least 12 types of emeralds being described. Uh, the English, the Egyptian, the Hermitian, the Persians, and those found in copper mines. They say that even though they're, they're all transparent, they have different intensity of green. So as you can tell, they're trying to classify the stone according to their brightness and the color, because obviously they can't do it by chemical uh, 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 makeup, right? Mm, right. Um, and then goes into the history of the emerald, saying that the Emperor Nero apparently owned, and this is a story that you will find, by the way, uh, not just in Camillo Leonardi, but you find it all the way back to Pliny, that Emperor Nero had an emerald of marvelous size uh, through which he saw the gladiators' battles. The sources of the time, it seems to suggest that, uh, you know, that he's using it as if it were a mirror, that things are being reflected on it. And so some people actually think that rather than an emerald itself, that it might have been a green marble um, a surface off of which 
things were reflected on, right? Well, what about the Delphic Oracle? She had a crystal ball, right? Have you ever read anything about that crystal ball maybe being composed of, you know, being, being a big diamond or anything like that? Across it, but I've not looked specifically into that reference. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm not able to comment further on it. Yeah. Uh, I, um, you know, in, there might be people who might have uh, delved into the nature of that stone, but I haven't looked carefully, so I'm not quite sure. You mentioned the power of the engraved image, or power from an engraved image in your talk from uh, Jules. What, what is that about? This is very interesting, you know, since we were just talking about emeralds. So an emerald could be, you know, could have its own innate power, which according to many sources, including Leonardi, is the power, for example, of keeping you um, uh, uh, virginal, of keeping you therefore uh, chaste, right? As well as that of healing sight and uh, rendering you sharper in mind. On the other hand, and this is natural magic. On the other hand, the idea is that you could carve images on a stone. Let's say that you're carving it on emerald. And the question at this point is, if you carve an image on this emerald, is the power of the stone magnified? Or are you adding more power to it? Now, in the sources, in medieval and Renaissance sources, you sort of have this discussion back and forth between the yes and no. The yes, though, the moment that you say that yes, you can actually magnify the power of the stone and you can add power to the stone, then you enter the realm of black magic, then you enter the realm of that which the church condemns, right? Because you're basically assuming the power of gods. You're basically saying that by a human action, you're now... Uh, accessing divine powers in a way that you were not able to do before and that this power your uh, do your bidding you know they are at your um, uh, uh, they're under your control right, and right. So it becomes they, witchcraft then yeah exactly exactly you find writers like Marsilio Ficino who wrote about lithotherapy and the thaumaturgical powers of stones in his um, third volume of the uh, De Vita on life and in the De Vita he actually says that if you carve images on a stone under very specific astrological constellations that is you carve for example on the day ruled by moon on the hour ruled by venus etc you can obtain very specific results and that got him into trouble that mm. is ready black magic right right yeah mm. that kind of idea and so you'll find many writers of the time relating these ideas or saying well i don't believe in it but i'm just reporting you know so that they can skew the the problem of uh, getting into trouble with the inquisition have you come across any iconology uh, of jewels which denotes specific attributes for gods in order to complement gods or anything stones are associated with specific constellation or or, mor or morals uh, or they're associated with specific gods right like emeralds is associated with venus so you will find very often in renaissance imagery representation of venus and she's bedecked with emeralds or with pearls as well 
Oh, okay, right, right. Okay, and then what about the iconology of nude woman and man? And then it had something to do with um, a hen sparrow and ceremonial magic. Um, now here, what you're uh, inquiring about is basically the type of imagery that appears on the stones. What kind of images is being described, for example, in the manual by Camillo Leonardi. And Camillo Leonardi describes a variety of images, among which some of them um, are erotic in nature, or the image might not necessarily be erotic, but the, uh, the power that it would have on its wearer is of an erotic nature. So it would basically lend you virility, you know? And so you oftentimes have these kind of descriptions, like a nude woman standing in front of, man, of a man who is showing a sign of love towards her, and then describing what kind of power it had. Now, what's interesting about the example that you mentioned is that in that particular instance, uh, Camillo Leonardi also says that that stone should be set in a ring. And in fact, uh, many of these manuals suggest that this stone should be worn as rings. And that the setting of the ring, you know, basically between the metal and the stone, it should have uh, uh, like the, the, the tongue of a sparrow, a bit of blood from the wearer. So very clearly black magic, very clear sorcery, you know. Wow, yeah. And then what about it? it would have an open back as well? Is that true? Yes, you see, what's interesting is that traditionally historians have considered the jewels uh, uh, that were cons that, that were believed to be magic to always be set on with an open backing, right? So you basically have, like, if you're thinking about a ring, you know, the back of the stone touches your uh, your um, finger, or it's visible, right? If you looked at the ring, you could see not only the front to the top bezel of the stone, but you could see the underside of the stone as well. Because, you know, uh, since it's an open backing, the, your body could absorb the energy of the stone. My argument is that the, these kind of examples that Leonardi gives us where the stone is set in a ring that contains a little bit of blood and it contains a little bit of, uh, of animal uh, uh, elements suggested not all magical rings had open backings, but rather that some of them actually must have had a closed backing to be able to contain these substances. Okay, right. And then uh, you had mentioned something about Sons of Israel 6 by 6. Ah, now you're, you're, uh, uh, what you're referencing is what we were discussing a little bit earlier in the interview, which is biblical sources uh, that um, uh, uh, in which we find the uh, uh, gems playing a role. And here in this case, you're uh, referencing uh, specifically Exodus 28, passage 17 and 20, where... Aaron wears uh, a gem-encrusted pectoral, and each gem of the pectoral is engraved with the uh, names uh, of the uh, sons of Israel. Oh, okay. Right. A, a gem-encrusted pectoral, that sounds like something Julius Caesar would have worn. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Jesse, I need to correct something. Yeah. It's not... Uh, it's not in the encrusted pectoral that it, the uh, names are uh, engraved. It's a different passage, uh, forgive me. It's Exodus 28, 9, 11, 
in which Aaron is asked to engrave the names of the sons of Israel on two stones. So six names on one stone and six names on another stone. So the 12 tribes. Okay. And then what other references to Jerusalem have you come across? Uh, in the Bible, you mean? Just in, in your general studies pertaining to um, uh, magic gems. Uh, you usually find this kind of, you know, specific reference obviously comes from Apocalypse 21, verse 18, slash 21. Uh, and then they are picked up over and over again through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. So it's something that you find almost like almost um, as a matter of fact. Know, people being aware of writers like Ficino, Poliziano, Pico della Mirandola are all aware of the references found in the Bible. Okay, and then you'd mentioned earlier about um, ancient Greece and how they believed in the magic of jewels. Uh, what what evidence is there for that? Uh, it's we find a number of um, manuals. Uh, the one that obviously I mentioned earlier is Pliny's The Natural Histories. Uh, we also have the Majoran, uh the Virtutibus Lapidum. Galen also di discusses the physician. Galen also discusses uh, lithotherapy. And you know it, what's interesting is that. Uh, they are discussed also with some skepticism. There is not just 100% belief of this works and it's perfect and it's fantastic. Oh my gosh. Uh, it's very clear that there is um, a sort of uh, ambivalent uh, uh, um, discussion in the literature. Part of it is because it, what you find is a little bit of confusion. And um, what am I referring to? Let me just pull out the specific source so that I can be very clear. Now, for example, you know, when it comes to um, sapphires, sapphires in uh, medieval and Renaissance sources are described as having healing properties for the eyes. What historians believe is that what has happened is a conflation of ideas from ancient Egypt. In ancient Egyptian medical manuals, uh, we find discussed a stone, which is nothing other than oxide of copper mixed with boric acid, which made an eye wash, right? And this mixture of oxide of copper with boric acid was known as lapis armenus. And it's still prescribed today, you know, not under the name of lapis armenus, but this sort of like mixture of, uh, uh, of oxide of copper with um, boric acid. When they translated the Egyptian medical manual, uh, this term, this lapis armenus, which was you know, uh, believed it to be slightly blue in color, was substituted with lapis lazuli. Because obviously it is the same color, but it is more precious, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, if this cheap, you know, blue stone, the lapis arnenus, has this power, if this oxide of copper has this power, then the more precious blue stone, the lapis lazuli, must have, all, must have it all. Then Do, what? I, sorry, does the lapis armonum have anything to do with um, Egyptian blue? That I'm, I'm not sure. I'd have to do. I have to do some research to see if lapis armenus is 
specifically uh, Egyptian blue, because I'm not sure if in Egyptian blue we have oxide of copper. So we would need to basically look into Egyptian blue to see if it is was created with a mixture of oxide of copper. So it gets the Egyptian text get translated. It's the lapis armenus gets substituted with lapis lazuli, and then eventually the lapis lazuli is translated or it's substituted with all blue gems. So all blue gems are assigned in this miraculous healing property that the uh, uh, oxide of copper had. And so sapphires are believed to have this oh, kind of... right. Okay. See, so, so, yeah, so you've been able to trace that. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. You can't do it for everything, you know, because unfortunately, you know, as you can tell, a lot of these things happen by mistranslation, substitutions. Some are very clear. Some, unfortunately, it's very difficult to figure out what exactly they are talking about, what stone they are uh, even referencing, you know. Are there any, uh, are, is there any historical record uh, saying what it was specifically that the Greeks did? Because that actually is the most interesting to me is what the Greeks would have done with stones or how they would have viewed them or used them. In, uh, in, in uh, the sources, it's clear that the stones are being uh, worn as amulets, so uh, worn as pendants or, you know, in a necklace in, or in a pouch so that it has to have some sort of contact with the body. And there is a question as to whether they should be ingested or not. There is a little bit of uh, um, sort of contradictions on it. You can find this discussion, you know, there is, um, let me see, either 2nd century BC, there's you know, in the literature a little bit of uh, 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 disagreement as to the date. So they're attributed to the 2nd century BC or the 1st century AD, a, a man called the the virtutibus lapidum, the virtues of stones, um, which was uh, or is attributed to the writer Damigeron or Damigeron, depending on your pronunciation, D-A-M-I-G-E-R-O-N. Dioscorides in the first century AD uh, in the Materia Medica lists uh, a number of stones and be ground uh, to be used, uh, um, you know, as medicine. And in Dioscorides, he suggests that it's better to, you know, ground, grind these stones, basically potions out of them rather than wearing stones as amulets. But we do find references where he allows for certain stones to be worn as amulets. Now, those are Roman or Greek? Scorides and the Medjurans seem to basically come out of a Latin literature, you know, so it's a mixture of both uh, um, uh, uh, Greek and uh, Roman. If you're looking of more specific Greek ones, there is the 4th century Greek Theophrastus. There is a, a small poem called Peri Litho, and this is very clearly Greek. Um, there is in the Middle Ages they also believed that Aristotle had written a book called the Perilithon but oh, it's really? a fiction uh, there is no evidence that Aristotle actually wrote anything like that Theophrastus yes in so Corpus you've in Kyrianides 
um, it's spelled K-Y-R-I-A-N-I-D-E-S. And what, is, what, is that, what does that mean? That's Greek? It's Greek and it's basically a text on uh, litteromancy and on geomancy and on stones. Litheromancy. Yes. Wow, like, wow. Lit, okay. Is it lit, litheromancy or lithomancy? Which one's correct? Romancy. L-I-T-T-E-R-O-M-A-N-C-Y. And I'm, uh, I hope that I'm not misspelling the idea that letters can be magic, right? Oh, okay, right, ladders. Okay, I thought you were referring to raw stones. What is stone uh, divination? What I'm saying, Jesse, is that basically in this volume of the Kira, uh, uh, in the, uh, I'm sorry, in the um, tradition of Alexandrian literature, you have also not only references to lithotherapy, but also to literomancy, to the magic of letters. Okay, right. Is, but is there any divination involving stone divination? Is there an, a word for that, like lithomancy? Would that be it? Yes. Okay, right. All right. And then um, just on a side note, have you actually practiced any or attempted any of these um, like spells <laughs> or anything with lithomancy or anything? <laughs> I've not. <laughs> you have, have, I'm sure you've been tempted. <laughs> no. Tempted to find the stone that will make me write the book very fast. Well, actually, you know what? I just brought up something very important. Um, what does the philosopher's stone, if anything, have to do with what you're studying and, and researching? The philosopher's stone is basically uh, the search for this material that would allow you to transform base metal into precious metals, right? Um, and so the Philosopher's Stone is actually something that al alchemists were trying to discover, that they were trying to produce. So not something that necessarily uh, was believed to um, uh, be widely available, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, did, anybody, did anybody believe that the Philosopher's Stone might be a diamond or an emerald or a sapphire or anything like that, a ruby? No, it doesn't show up. It doesn't. Okay, that's it. That's interesting in itself, isn't it? I think well, you know, because obviously they're doing all sorts of what would be today chemical um, yeah, experiments, right? And it's very clear to them that the uh, uh, that none of these stones allow them to transform base metal into precious metals, right? And so none of them get classified as the philosopher's stone. And what about the prismatic qualities? I think you had mentioned refraction in your talk, but um, can you go more more specifically into the, any prismatic qualities you've read about or any importance of uh, refraction? Um, you, you know, that's mostly just, again, it goes back to what uh, we were discussing earlier in the talk. It's more it has to do with how we contemporary historians might want to interpret these stones, right? And might want to interpret the role that these stones had in portraiture, etc. But in the sources of the time, you know, you have to consider that they haven't come up yet with the, you know, the, the fancy diamond cuts that we see today. So stones are mostly cut in cabochon style, right? So basically uh, a semicircular domed uh, shape. 
So refraction is not really one of the important qualities that they're looking at, you know. Okay, so we can leave that to Newton. Have you actually have you ever um read found any references to Newton at all, or is that too late because that's 1666? Yeah, I'm dealing with a, a century prior. So right, right, right. Okay. Now, um, you mentioned something fascinating in your talk, and I'd never considered this before. You compared fetish to talisman. Ah, yes. Now, what's interesting is what I, you know, in in the research that I've done, you know, over and over again, you find these objects being referred to as talismans or fetishes, right? And so I started looking at, well, what is the definition of talisman and fetish? Why is it that they keep being used interchangeably? Are they really truly interchangeably, right? Um, And, you know, even in a dictionary, if today you look definition of a talisman and of a fetish in a dictionary is pretty much the same, right? Mm -hmm. And kind of, you know, um, attracted my attention uh, because I wondered if that is truly the case. And so I looked then, you know, I started looking then at that point into psychoanalytic definition of talisman versus fetish. And it's, they're clearly very different. They're not necessarily the same. And uh, I found in particular a definition given by um, play therapists and psychoanalysts, Kielik and Shaverin, which deal with the idea of how an image might function as a talisman versus a fetish. And in their analysis, what they've argued is that a talisman is produced by a a set of identification processes. So basically you can say, you know, this stone will protect me from drowning, right? That's a conscious association. So, you know, then we can say this stone is a talisman. On the other hand, it's clear that some of these stones are being used to actually address anxieties that are sexual, that are social, and they are not actually articulating the idea that they are, you know, they are using the stones for this very specific anxiety. So in that case, then we have an unconscious process. So if it is an unconscious process, we actually have a fetish. So Kilik and Shaverin argue that the fetish then is usually uh, uh, born out of unconscious processes, right? Okay, okay, right, 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 right. So it's, where would something that is totemic fall into? Would that be fetishistic or talismanic? Well, like, totem could have both the talismanic quality, but it could also have fetishistic qualities, right? So you could have both. You know, that's what's interesting about this definition is then that's why I think that there is the confusion is that the, the, L, the object, the stone or not, can have both conscious quality as well as unconscious qualities. So you might be using it for a very specific purpose without realizing it that you're all using it for address unconscious anxieties. Is there any evidence pointing to the beginning of man's uh, desire to have stones and cut them for their brilliance? Uh, You know, it's from what I've read, 
in even like in archaeological digs from early, you know, uh, Stone Age sites, it's quite clear that, uh, you know, um, men collected uh, and created necklaces or charms with stones and shells and things that obviously attracted their eyes, you know? Right, right. Okay, so it, it's fairly native then. Seems to be, absolutely. You mentioned something about Vespucci and Botticelli. Uh, being that even images that were produced by artists like Botticelli have thought to have magical or alchemical uh, uh, elements to it. In particular, I think something like the, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the birth of Venus, you know, which you yeah. probably... Uh, so, for example, the, the, the God's gesture, the, the Venus pudica gesture, where she has her arms over her breasts and one of her hand over the pudenda, is supposed to refer to the double aspect of love, the sensual and the pure, right? So an alchemical, again, uh, um, idea. The sacred and profane. Sacred and profane, exactly. Uh, the the painting can also be interpreted following Marsilio Ficino's uh, discussion of astral talismans, of astrological talismans, right? Um, uh, I'm trying to remember also other things. Um, the uh, Venus is associated, obviously, the goddess Venus is associated with the star Venus, right? or the, the planet Venus. And these benign, in the Renaissance, this benign astral element counteracted the aggressive drive of Mars or the melancholic drive of Saturn, right? Okay. So, you know, the, the image of the painting of Venus might actually be painted so that the patron, you know, could receive the positive influence of Venus. You see, so it's it's almost like suggesting painting it just because it's a beautiful goddess, but because they're hoping that the representation of the goddess might influence their soul, might influence their disposition is that today, particularly with the, um, with the development of the internet and the way in which we've become collectively connected, uh, I think what's fascinating is that there seems to be a resurgence for some of the uh, Jungian ideas, you know, the collective consciousness, the collective unconscious, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think when you when you're talking about post psychology, I think what's going to be interesting is that we might see an uh, a revival for some of the most abstruse of the Jungian ideas. Yeah, well, that's that's probably good. Anything that counteracts Freud, I think, in my opinion, is good. <laughs> so yes, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I discovered that there were these manuals of lithotherapy. And lo and behold, I discovered one that was published at the beginning of the 16th century, which had not been translated into, uh, fully translated into English. And, and so I was interested in reading it and I picked it up 
And it was such a compendium of all sorts of ideas and beliefs that it was, you know, it just was really fascinating for me. And I decided that I would translate the whole thing, which I finished last year. And I hope to eventually publish not only the translation, but also the critical edition. So write, obviously, uh, 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 a substantial preface to the book that discusses basically the context in which this book uh, appeared and how it was produced, etc. Does it contain illustrations? No, this book does not contain illustration. If you're interested in a book that does have illustration, then you should look into um, uh, a manual that was published in the 15th century called the Hortus Sanitatis, the Garden of Health. And there is a number of copies of this manual, the Hortus Sanitatis, you can find images online. It's most likely of German production. And a copy of the Hortus Sanitatis, oddly enough, is found at the Natural History Museum in San Diego. Really? The Natural History Museum in San Diego, you know, in Balboa Park, has... A lovely library, and they have some really incredible uh, volumes that they've collected, you know, through the through time. Oh, do they? Okay, well, that's nice to hear. The Gemological Institute of America, which is known as the GIA, is located in Carlsbad, California. Oh, all and right. Library is one of the most incredible library of. Uh, ancient and rare manuals on gems and precious stones. They have almost uh, an an edition of everything that has ever been published on magic uh, stones. And it's not that they are specifically interested in magic, they're just collecting everything that was published on gems and precious stones. Wow, what is that supported by? By the Gemological Institute of America, and so by all the, uh, um, you know, the uh, various jewelry stores and companies, etc. Oh, right, are, right, okay. So that industry and precious stones and colored stone industries. Well, that's fascinating. That sounds good. It's, it sounds like it's a good place, a good location for it. Carlsbad, right on the ocean. Well, okay. Well, that's great. Well, uh, thanks very much, Liliana. Thank you for listening to the Great Work Radio Program. The Great Work Radio and Blog are features of Jesse War's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. That's J E S S E W A U G H.com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoyed today's program.